You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. A'uzu billahi minash shaitan rajim. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Welcome to the Voice of Islam Radio. You are listening to myself, Daniel Ahmed, and uh, today. As it is our custom, we will start with the uh, weather update for this week. And today, um, for the forecast today, is that the cloud and rain will gradually become confined to the southeast, um, turning drier and brighter from the west. A few showers will linger along some coasts, mainly in the far north and uh, southwest. For tonight, it will be largely dry and clear as many showers in the east die out. A mist and fog will develop in southern areas. Uh, cloud moving into the far west uh, towards dawn along the strengthening winds. For Wednesday, uh, after a cold start for many, tomorrow will turn increasingly cloudy and windy from the west with rain reaching Northern Ireland, Wales and far west Scotland by evening. Uh, dry and bright elsewhere. Um, an outlook for Thursday to Saturday. A, a milder and windier day on Thursday with cloudy skies and spells of rain or showers sweeping in from the west. Turning to snow for a time in the northern hills. Uh, staying largely upsettled and wet on Friday. Um, Saturday looks uh, have uh, plenty of clouds to start. A band of rain will uh, gradually spread uh, north eastwards with skies clearing, uh, clearing in behind. So that's the update for the forecast uh, for the coming uh, days um, in this week. And uh, now we will move on to our um, new segment. Um, the newspaper headlines of the, the week and but before that I would like to encourage our uh, listener to uh, uh, to contact uh, if they want to contact us if they have any questions or queries they can you know contact us at uh, 0044020868778 or you can go to our website uh, voiceofislam.co.uk or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Now we will you know, d- um, dive into the uh, newspaper headlines and it goes like this that um, access denied and new rules to slash migration. The FT leads with Home Secretary uh, James uh, Cleverly's bid to get a grip on immigration by making it harder for employers to hire overseas staff by raising the pay threshold for skilled workers. They will need to earn at least £38,700 to get a visa up from £26,200. Care workers will also be uh, barred from bringing in dependents from next April. The Daily Express also leads with tougher migration rules 
uh, with which the government is trying to slash immigration by 300,000. Enough is enough, it quotes. The Home Secretary as saying, when talking about abuses of the visa system as he unveiled uh, the plans to the House of Commons. The Daily Telegraph observes the plan to cut arrivals by a quarter is designed uh, to head off a revolt by right-wing Tory MPs over record migration figures. It adds, James Cleverly is due to fly to Rwanda to sign a new treaty to secure flights of illegal migrants to this East African country. Elsewhere, the paper pictures a dual national British-Israeli Benjamin Nedham 19 killed fighting for the Israeli Defence Forces. The Daily Mail writes, the policies are the biggest ever clapdown on immigration. Rita Ora turns her back to photographers reeling a chrome spine along her back at the British Fashion Awards. The Time writes, the Home Secretary's five-point plan also includes a review of allowing foreign students to stay two years after their course and making it harder for foreign spouses to come to Britain. It also reports the reaction of his uh, predecessor, Suela Brevenman, who said the policies came too late and government can go further. Elsewhere, Amal Clooney, lawyer and wife of George Clooney, uh, shimmers in a sequin dress at the British Fashion Awards. Access denied headlines. The Sun, as uh, the Sun, as it mocks up a passport for its front front page. Rishi Sunak writes in the paper: "Enough is enough. It's time to get control of immigration once and for all." The Guardian reports that the Sellafield nuclear site has been hacked into by cyber groups linked to Russia and China with breaches as far back as 2015. According to their investigation, the government said it had a high degree of confidence that there was no malware in its system. In the center of the front page, Palestinian children are pictured after an Israeli strike in Gaza the paper reports Israeli tanks have extended their offensive into South Gaza. The I reports on the Environment Agency inspecting just 10% of water pollution incidents last year, with inspectors visiting only 35% of the most serious incidents. Campaigners tell the people they have struggled to get a response to complaints. Fridge makes you keep. Headlines the Daily Mirror. The paper says ITV bosses are in despair trying to find fun footage of the ex-UKIP leader uh, during his stint in IMS laboratory. Get me out of here at the top of the page. Maya Jama and Rochelle and Rochelle Humes also serve up looks at the British Fashion Awards. The Daily Star mocks up an asteroid 
hurtling towards the Earth as as it reports on NASA monitoring up to 20,000 asteroids which have the potential to destroy Earth or at least cause a nasty problem. Access denied is the Sun's front page headline in reference to the government's new plans to reduce migration. Uh, writing for the paper, Rishi Sunak sums up the approach as if you cannot contribute to the UK, you cannot come to the UK. The Daily Express calls the measures uh, sensible and practical in, in its editorial. Um, the Time describes them as, the, as a sound basis, basis for reducing the number of people coming to the country and a um, proportionate response. Uh, for the Daily Mail, the proposals are far-reaching, but it also has a warning for the government. Uh, the fact that the measures will not be introduced until April means Mr. Sunak may find that he has taken what he considers to be radical action, only to find an ungrateful public has barely noticed. In her analysis in the Daily Telegraph, uh, Camilla notes, it remains to be seen whether the public will view still granting leads every year as the largest reduction on record, as the government has claimed. Uh, the Daily Mirror is scathing in its assessment, calling the plans chaotic and cruel. In its lead story, The Guardian says the UK's most um, hazardous uh, nuclear site, um, Salafield, in the, uh, in the Cumbria, has been hacked into by cyber groups. Uh, linked to Russia and China, it claims the security breach was first detected in 2015, and it is no and it is not yet known if the malware has been eradicated. Uh, Sealafield has told the paper it has no record of its networks being successfully attacked by the state actors. So these were the headlines of the week. And um, with this, we will take a short break. And um, after the break, we have some very interesting and um, fascinating uh, topics to discuss. And for that, we will also be joined by our esteemed guest as well, who will, you know, enlighten us on the following topics. Um, the number one topic for our segment one is urgent calls for conservation the importance of protecting biodiversity number two uh, uh, protecting and helping disabled palestinians and the last topic will be what is the key to ensuring a true spirit of volunteering a very key topic so very exciting and uh, interesting topics and hopefully um um Till nine o'clock, uh, we will be with you. And now it's time for a short break, after which we will discuss uh, urgent call for conservation, the importance of protecting biodiversity. Please join us after the after the short break. <laughs> Yeah. 
المهيمن Referring to the protector, one who is a guardian, Al-Muhaymin is the one who stands as a witness for his chosen ones and the one who provides security. This benevolent attribute of God is most visible through his protection of his loved ones. The entire life of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is a testament to the attribute of Al-Muhaymin. During the Battle of Uhud, there came a time where the enemy had surrounded the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. The Muslims, exhausted, had scattered about the field, leaving the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, alone and exposed. But it was Al-Muhaymin who stood in his defense. It was he who caused the Muslims to assemble and form a ring around the Prophet, peace be upon him. He gave them the strength to fight until they themselves were pierced by the swords of the enemy. He was the reason the Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had been facing certain death, but through the protection granted by Al-Muhaymin, our beloved Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was able to survive. This is just one of many incidents where the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him's life was safeguarded through divine protection. One of the most devoted followers of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was the promised Messiah on whom be peace. Hazrat Mirza Bashir Ahmad, may God be pleased with him, wrote that God himself was the guardian of the promised Messiah. He was the reason why Talha, may God be pleased with him, could absorb arrow after arrow. The Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had been facing certain death, but through the protection granted by Al-Muhaymin, our beloved Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was able to survive. This is just one of the many incidents where the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him's life, was safeguarded through divine protection. The promised Messiah on whom be peace was skilled in swimming and horseback riding. On one occasion, he was swimming and nearly drowned. He was saved by an older man whom he had never seen prior to this incident and never saw again. On another instance, he was riding a horse that became uncontrollable, so much so that it crashed into a tree. This proved to be fatal for the horse, but the promised Messiah on whom be peace was miraculously saved without any injury. These are not mere coincidences, nor good luck. This is the work of Al-Muhaymin. How else would the promised Messiah on whom be peace be saved by a man who vanished into thin air? Or be saved in an accident that killed a mighty animal? 
the same protection that was afforded to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and the promised Messiah on whom be peace, is granted to all believers. Al-Muhaymin is the one who protects against the severe and subtle attacks of Satan. He guards against accidental and intentional injury. He stands witness for the truthful and provides security to those without a voice. It is the way of God to protect His believers, to become benefactors of the protection of Al-Muhaymin. It is incumbent to accept the Imam of the time. Writings of the Promised Messiah Salat, prayer, and istighfar, seeking forgiveness, are excellent remedies for apathy and indifference. One should supplicate in Salat, O oh Allah, alienate me from my sins. If a person continues to pray sincerely, it is certain that his prayer would be answered sometime. It is not good to be in a hurry. A farmer does not harvest the crop immediately after sowing. One who is impatient is unfortunate. The sign of a pious one is that he is not impatient. Lack of patience has resulted in many a known case of failure. If a person digs a well to the depth of twenty arms length and stops short of just one due to his impatience, he would waste his entire labor were he to dig the remaining arm length with patience, he would achieve his purpose. It is the way of God Almighty that He bestows the blessings of love, eagerness, and understanding after sufferings. Of Islam Radio. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio, broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show on Voice of Islam Radio. Uh, as you know, before the break, we were discussing um, the weather update, update uh, of the week and the headlines of the week. And in this segment, um, as being told before that, we will discuss on the matter of urgent call for conservation, the importance of protecting biodiversity, a very important uh, topic 
a very key topic needs to be discussed and and has been discussed before on from uh, various aspects as well but the gist of the story of today's um, segment or topic is that UK faces serious threat, uh, threats to its biodiversity and natural conditions. Um, the State of uh, Nature report revealed that one in six species in the country is threatened with extinction, with a large number of species experiencing significant uh, population declines. The climate crisis, intensive agriculture or other human activities are the main causes of this environmental uh, degradation. Uh, natural habitats are being destroyed, species are being threatened and the state of ecosystem is deteriorating. Conservation experts and activists uh, including the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds and the Wildlife Trust highlight the urgency of protecting uh, wildlife and ecosystems um, they want that you know urgent action uh, is needed to prevent further losses and restore threatened natural conditions uh, calls to protect at least 30 percent of the land and oceans in, are in focus with an emphasis on the need to um, create bigger and better spaces for uh, wildlife and now we have with us our first guest of the show um, and the first guest of the show is Mark um, Bergman. Um, Mark Bergman is Emeritus Professor of Risk Analysis and Environmental Policy at Imperial College uh, London. Uh, previously he was uh, the head of the Center for Environmental Policy at Imperial College um, following positions at uh, as head of department of biosciences, um, director of the Australian Centre of Excellence for for risk analysis, and he has worked on um, expert uh, judgment, decision analysis, conservation biology, and risk assessment in in a broad range of settings, including marine forestry, irrigation, electrical, power, utility, uh, utilities, um, and more. And he has joined the University of Melbourne in 1990 and moved to Imperial uh, in 2017. And he has published um, seven authored books and over 300 research papers and book uh, chapters. And his most recent book, um, Trusting Judgments, appeared through Cambridge University Press in 2015. He was elected to the Australian Academy of Science in 20, uh, in uh, 2006. Mm. Uh, Mark Bergman, welcome to the show. Peace be on you. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I appreciate the very nice introduction you've given me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> And Mark, my first question to you is that um, if you can, you know, elaborate and also define um, that what is the definition of biodiversity policy and and why it is, uh, you know, important in the context of of nature conservation. Well, but, but biodiversity is is shorthand for biological diversity, and it means the variety of living things around us species, um, the variation within species, 
all the different kinds of species that are around us and the ecosystems that they live in and the interactions between mm -hmm. the species and subspecies in those ecosystems. So it's a, we live in a complicated world and it's the job of policy, I suppose. Governments make policy and at all levels and it's really um, the, it's a representation of how society wants us to behave in relation to the natural world. Um, so policy encompasses things like fresh water, um, uh, clean air, um, cities that are livable, that, um, that, have, uh, that keep us safe, and safe from harm and that um, uh, keep us uh, away from pollution and all those sorts of things. They also, mm -hmm. It also means um, it, policy governs uh, the, the actions that local and regional agencies might take when it comes to deciding on planning around towns and cities in, mm. in Great Britain and elsewhere in Europe and around the world. Um, and so the, the, the job of government is to balance, I suppose, the, the objectives we might have for protecting species and ecosystems with the need to produce food and build houses and, and give people a better quality of life. And it's finding the trade-offs mm. that satisfy people that is, is the job of policy. And that's, you know, we, we'd all, we, none of us want species to go extinct, I think. I think mm. it's fair to say. Um, mm. None of us want um, ecosystem to be harmed, for water not to be fresh, for, for, for air not to be clean. But we have to accept some harm. And the, jo the job of policy is to decide how much harm we can tolerate to get the things that we want to have a decent standard of living. Mm. Long answer to a very short question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. That's really beautifully explained. But can you also, you know, elaborate as well that you have elaborated that uh, uh, about its importance, but also how it can be achieved, um, the goals can be achieved. Um, and for this, I know uh, collaboration needed between the government and scientists as well. So can you yes, also indeed. elaborate on this? Yeah, look, um, it's, another, it's another very good question. Um, it, you know, uh, it's, we, we live, uh, I'm struggling because it's, it's a, I don't, I don't want to make it too long, the answer, but... Um, uh, no, that's fine. The, <laughs> okay. The thing, the, 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 the rate at which we cause change in the environment is the thing that we have to struggle with the most. Um, w when we think about climate change, um, climates have been warmer in the past, uh, in the geological past, but the thing that's most concerning is the rate of change, the, the, the speed with which temperature is increasing and carbon dioxide is in, accumulating in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide and methane as well, accumulate in the atmosphere, are really much faster than has been experienced in the geological past. And species take time to adapt, to uh, move, if, if, if things become warmer, uh, if, thing, if, if uh, climates become wetter or drier, as they may do, um, species have to move or adapt by, by evolution. And those things take long periods. And as a consequence of the speed with which humans are changing the world around us, um, we're likely to lose a lot of species and we're likely to change the way in which um, ecosystems function. And mm. as a consequence of that, um, mm. it's just good stewardship to be careful, to, mm. to, to 
only to change things when we know that the things that we change are not going to precipitate outcomes that we would much rather have avoided. And to do that, we just need to be cautious. And that, and that leads to the point where you say, for example, that we governments need to cooperate with scientists. That's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Scientists need to have, but scientists need to have the time and the resources to understand the systems well enough to know what can change and what shouldn't change. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just good stewardship. It's, it means taking care of the world around us to the point that we are wise in the choices we make. And uh, uh, that means, it also means cooperation with mm. the wider public. You know, exactly. for example, we think about it this being as, as the task of governments and scientists to figure out what to do. Mm. But there is a growing, uh, a growing realization that the wider public can be involved in understanding how the natural world works. It's called citizen science. And it means that people like you and me, mm. um, who mightn't have a particular uh, training or particular experience in the natural world, can become involved in scientific projects, mm. help scientists to do their work, collect data, analyze data, think about the consequences of actions, and design experiments indeed, so that um, the responsibility for learning becomes much wider than just a few closeted scientists at universities. Mm-hmm. And lastly, um, that um, as an expert in um, risk analysis and environmental policy, uh, mm. could you please also tell us that how do you integrate um, rich uh, risk approaches in in designing policies to protect species and uh, and ecosystems? Yeah, this is another very good question. Um, the, the the things that we do that have adverse impacts on species and on ecosystems um, uh, have effects that are against a background of natural environmental variation. Things, you know, the, the, the weather is either hot or cold or, or wet or dry. Naturally, things vary and, and, and we can't predict exactly what's going to happen in the future. Mm. And, and so the things that we change uh, are against a background of, of, of variation. And so it's the job of, I guess, environmental scientists particularly for trying to understand the background variation and then and then to estimate the magnitude of the impact that we have in terms of the likelihood or the or the chances that things will go awry go that things will happen that we wish would rather have not happened and that mean that might mean there's some background risk of, of a species becoming eliminated from part of the landscape mm. and then we do things and we increase that risk and it, it's so we we tend to represent uh the effects of what people do in terms of the added risk to the environment to species or to ecosystems and it's the added risk which is the human responsibility um yep, exactly um that it is our responsibility to take care of our environment um, yes. Yep. Thank you very much, Mark, um, for coming on the show and taking your time out. Um, thank you very much. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Oh, look, it's a, it's a very you. great pleasure to have been here. Thank you so thank much you, for asking thank me. You. Peace be on you. So that was Mark Bergman, um, emeritus professor of risk analysis and uh, 
um, Environmental Policy at Imperial College London. <coughs> As you know, we are discussing a very, very important uh, topic, um, uh, which is urgent call for conservation, the importance of protecting biodiversity. Um, and you know there are also um, very uh, different uh, angles and perspectives of Islamic angle as well which are linked to this topic and also to many other topics as well but uh, specifically regarding this topic um, um, why is if you can you know just um, give us some uh, or you can shed some light on this topic uh, through the angle of uh, Islam so um, obviously there is Islam teaches that obviously that there is no creature that moves on on the earth um, you know whose sustenance is not the responsibility of Allah and he mentions that in, in the Holy Quran in, in chapter 11 verse 7 um, that all species they have they have rights to exist and they are part of um, our earth interdependent systems created by God Right, so um, it's important for us to understand that we are created by God, and we are God's uh, creatures. Um, yes, but uh, right now we have with us our next guest, and hopefully, inshallah, um, we will continue with this um, after uh, after after the guest. And right now we have with us um, Nell Pates. Um, Nalpates uh, is um, um, Nalpates is a PhD candidate at Imperial College London. She is studying um, the effects of rewilding on damaged landscapes across the UK, uh, with a special interest in biodiversity recovery. Um, Welcome to the show, uh, Danlates. Um, Danlates, sorry, pr pr pronouncing your name wrong. And hi, good morning. No, it's uh, fine. good morning. Thank you. Peace be on you. Um, can you hear me? Hi. Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can perfectly hear you. So my first question to you is that um, where are the biggest biodiversity hotspots uh, around the world? Um, so biodiversity hotspots, there are some that we, we think of really instinctively when we think of biodiversity hotspots. So places like the Amazon rainforest would be one or in the ocean, things like um, coral reefs. So places that have lots and lots of species um, all in one, one close area. Um, I think it's really important when we talk about biodiversity, not just to think about places like that. So, um, so it's small defined places that have lots of species. Um, but there are also hotspots that have um, very specialist species. So like the Arctic doesn't have thousands and thousands of species in it, but the ones that are there are very specialist. So that can be a, a, a hotspot mm. in itself. Mm. And the main causes of uh, biodiversity are changes in land and sea use and climate change. Can you please also, you know, elaborate and explain um, each one in detail? Um, sure. So changes in land and sea use is a is a really big threat to biodiversity um, in the world. Uh, it's the, probably the main 
one of the main impacts that humans have on biodiversity. And um, so on land, you were thinking about things like um, farming and urbanization. So these introduce um, unnatural habitats. We clear what used to be there and we put in place uh, farms or we build roads or we build buildings. Um, and what that does is it introduces new components to the systems. So um, chemicals, things like fertilizer in farms, um, and then just things like tarmac and concrete, like these things aren't um, natural to the habitats and it, it changes the way that every other species has to live there. The sea has a lot of the same problems, but the, um, so things like runoff from agricultural uh, fertilizers and chemicals, uh, but also overfishing, um, which is exploitation of the sea so that we take too much resources out of it. Um, when we talk about climate change, that's basically the emissions that we've put into the atmosphere as humans, um, in particular since the Industrial Revolution, has caused changes across um, all ecosystems on the planet at mm -hmm. this point. Um, we know that climate change is a lot more than global warming. It's contributing to all of the extreme weather events that you'll see in the news, uh, wildfires, uh, flooding, droughts, and um, the increased temperatures that we've seen all over the world, even here in the UK. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, what are the three biggest um, threats to biodiversity right now, and uh, how can they be tackled? So the three biggest threats to biodiversity that I would um, highlight right now are habitat loss, climate change, mm -hmm. um, and just the pace of change. So habitat loss, everything that I talked about before, um, clearing land, pushing species out of where they where they live, um, and also things like introducing invasive species, which pushes um, species out of their natural range. Climate change, exactly like above, when you change the, the conditions, hotter, wetter, drier, any change at all, some of these species have, have built up their tolerances to their environments over millions of years. And if mm. you change it too much, too fast, they just they only have two choices, to move or to go extinct. Um, and then the speed of change is the other one. If it happens too fast, there's just not much that, that species themselves can do, which means that we need people to be able to step in and, and, and help them with conservation or with um, technological solutions. Um, in terms of how they can be tackled, so I think there's a few things that people can do. A main one would be um, changing our habits, so eating less mm. meat and fish, because that takes up a huge amount of, of terrestrial space and, and marine space. Another one would be reducing our energy consumption, so driving and flying less. But I think most important is um, is not the personal responsibility, but the collective responsibility. So um, mm, individuals exactly. can't do this alone. We need to vote. We need to get a campaign for, for our green spaces and, and put people in power that care about fixing these problems. Mm. I, I think that's a very vital and valid point that it's not a personal responsibility it's more like a collective responsibility and um, my last question to you is that um, where do you see um, our earth uh, in like 20 or 30 years as you know climate change is, is impacting biodiversity a lot yeah, so I suppose there's a there's a, a frightening response to that, and there's a hopeful response to that. So so at present, um, about a million species in the world are currently threatened with extinction, and the time frame for that really could be you know within the next generation, within the next 20 to 50 years, and that's that's quite frightening. We think about things like um, you know big uh, species like pandas and tigers, but it's the tiny things that really matter, and then the fact is we don't even know which of those that we're losing. Um, if we lose insects that pollinate our food, if we lose the plankton in the ocean that provide half of the oxygen we breathe, um, we won't even see that happening because these are tiny things and a million species 
globally at risk of extinction is, is huge. Um, but at the same time, I think things are changing, things are moving. Um, the world is more aware of climate change, of biodiversity loss. Um, and I hope that that means we'll, we'll continue to work together to put things in place to protect nature, to improve nature, um, and to just give uh, biodiversity a chance to, to rebound and to thrive. And that, that is achievable in the next generation. We just have to make the decision to do it. Mm, literally. Um, thank you very much, um, Nell Pates, um, for coming on the show and taking your time out. Uh, it was light to have you on the show. Thank you very much and peace be on you. And on you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So Nell Pates, uh, she's a PhD um, candidate at Imperial College London and studying the effects of rewilding on damaged landscapes across the UK. And right now we have with us our next guest as well. Well, yeah, our next guest is is um, Christina Banks. Christina Banks is a tropical ecologist from Brazil. She moved here in 2010 when she started working at Imperial College. Her research is about understanding what drives spe uh, species extinction and what happens to the environment when species are not there anymore. She is a reader in Conversation Ecology Now, and the results from her research have influenced policy in two different countries. Um, Christina Banks, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning, thank you for having me. Uh, without any further ado, Christina, um, what do you think the top five threats to biodiversity are? And what can we do to stop these these threats from, from taking place? Yes, of course. So, so um, the, the top five threat is um, habitat loss and habitat change. So any sort of deforestation that we do to the habitat or you know, any sort of change. Um, and um, then uh, invasive species, uh, particularly um, a threat in islands and some remote places. Um, there's pollution is a particular threat to also um, um, uh, freshwater species and aquatic species. Then there's uh, climate change and and um, hunting and exploitation and these sorts of things. So, so um, I mean, all of these threats are driven by humans, and um, and they, they are complicated to stop or simply prevent. Mm. But um, um, but we we have to do something. Uh, particularly uh, regarding um, uh, habitat change, because, um, for instance, the, the pace at which we're still deforesting vast areas of tropical forests is really, really uh, fast, and and um, and and that's where most of the species live. So we really need to do something about that, and mm. otherwise we're just going to lose millions of species without even knowing. Them. Indeed, um, Christina, what happens when an ecosystem becomes less biodiverse? And the um, relationship between extinction, biodiversity, and and uh, the habitat destruction. Yeah. So, um, so we species do a lot of things in the environment, and a lot of these things we take completely for granted. So, for instance, the the most you know the the most common uh, example is bees and pollination. So, if we lose bees or if we lose pollinators we lose 66% of the plants we eat and 
and you know that this is just something like it's a service it's a function that species do in the ecosystem that we just completely take for granted and we don't we don't pay for it we just assume that they all exist and there's loads of uh, of these sorts of functions it's called ecosystem functions that species provide so it could be for instance in, in, you know um uh, pest control so birds will be eating um, insects that live near farms, for instance, and thereby reducing the amount of uh, pests that we have in the farms. So there a very large number of of um, interactions that these species have with the ecosystem that um, we use on a daily basis. Mm. And if we lose them, we're absolutely not going to be able to to live life as we know it. Tenon ecosystem be both resilient and resistant and the role of biodiversity in ecosystem function and stability biology yeah so it's um it's a difficult question that one so usually you're either resilient or you're resistant so resilience is for instance um you know if we're thinking about fire imagine the um, mediterranean ecosystem so that is a, a, an ecosystem that catches fire easily and and but it rebounds quite quickly as well so so uh, the whole area will be burnt and then quickly the plants will regrow and and the species are able to thrive back again now if you think of the amazon forest for instance it's a it's a habitat that it's really hard to catch fire because it's quite humid but if it does there is no resilience so the you know once it's burnt it's burnt and it's going to be um, damage for a very long time. So I don't think we can have the two things. But but most habitats do have one of them. So they're either you know. So so it's uh, it's kind of trying to figure out what is the best way to get them back up running or not push them you know past a point of no return. Um, I forgot what your what was your last question. My my last question now, uh, Christina, is because we're running mm-hmm. towards the eight o'clock news is. Based on your research, can you tell our listeners about uh, structured community research in fragmented tropical landscapes um, and how you conducted that research, please? Yeah, so my my research really is about trying to um, study species, either plants, uh, insects, um, vertebrates, in in bits of land within farmland. So I go often to farms and and talk to farmers and then try to figure out what sort of species are there and then um, we can tell for instance if um, a a piece of forest that has I don't know two hectares is enough to uh, contain uh, enough biodiversity or not and then trying to figure out how much habitat do we need to preserve biodiversity within different countries so that's a lot of what I do. Brilliant. Christina Banks, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it was a pleasure to to speak to you this morning. Um, and thank you, and may God bless you and all, all your work as well. Thank you so much. Um, it was a pleasure to be here today. Bye. Um, that was Christina Banks, a tropical ecologist from Brazil. She moved here in 2010 when she started working at Imperial College. Her research is about understanding what drives species extinction, and what happens to the environment once species are not there anymore. She is a reader in uh, Conservation Ecology Now, and the results from her research have influenced policy in two different countries. 
Um, I believe, Daniel, that's bringing us towards the 8 o'clock news. Yes. And with that, it's bringing us to the end of this segment. Um, but there are some Islamic points which we will discuss after We will the discuss break. after yeah. the break. So, uh, dear listeners, do stay with us. Do stay tuned. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Uh, welcome back to the breakfast show on Voice of Islam Radio. Um, as before the break, we were discussing uh, about the urgent call for conservation, the important the importance of protecting biodiversity, and our very esteemed guest as well. You know, they were enlightening us on this very topic. But now we will um, discuss some Islamic points as well, and um, regarding this, um, there's a very beautiful and very um uh, very very beautiful verse uh, in the holy quran that it says that corruption has appeared on land and sea because of what men's hands have wrought so that allah may make them taste the consequences of their actions and that they may turn back from evil um um quran uh, chapter 30 verse 42 to 43 and you know obviously it, it tells us that um it is the you know it is what man's ha- hands has wrought that um, Allah has you know uh, designed everything very beautifully but it is the doing of men uh, to make things wrong and um, so we need to understand this from our part that it is our fault not the fault of the creator rather we should you know uh, try to reform ourselves um instead of blaming uh, others or the creator and that's a very very vital and very valid point which firstly we need to understand ourselves as well then obviously then we can start the taking initiatives different initiatives and incentives as well and also uh, this point also need to be you know understood as well that it always is the um responsibility of the governments as well you know who are to who has to um take such uh, responsibilities um and they need to introduce such incentives um and um, then obviously uh, by introducing after introducing the such incentives which are which will be beneficial for the society and then um, the the human uh, the society can implement on that but firstly um, need to take initiatives and then you know biodiversity declines are partially a result of environmental mismanagement and can bring uh, harm to humans Mm, conservation is thus crucial from an islamic uh, viewpoint to respect god's creation uh, fulfill our collective responsibility towards uh, species and um, uh, need to and try to avoid uh, environment, uh, environmental degradation and uh, you know uh, again in the holy quran Allah the almighty states that do not uh, do they not see the birds held poised in mid-air in the vault of heaven nothing holds them up except Allah again Allah says that a Allah is doing um, Allah has designed everything very beautifully even the clouds the mountains the birds and and the and the and the, and the Sun and the moon and how they are revolving around each other 
it, it's such a beautiful and perfect design that uh, we can't find any error in this but when we humans try to you know um, take things in, in, into our hand and try to you know uh, mold things uh, according to us then where things go wrong and we need to you know understand this point that we need to understand that um, we should try to understand the teachings of Allah Almighty and try to implement and uh, implement our life accordingly, according to the will uh, and pleasure of Allah Almighty. But right now, we will, you know, end this topic and we'll delve into our second topic, um, which is um, the protecting and helping disabled um, Palestinians. And Mubaz, if you, you know, could, you know, uh, for our listeners, uh, tell us the gist of the story, please. So the dire situation faced by um, disabled Palestinians in, in Gaza during the conflict must be our, our primary concern. The orphanage um, director, Hazim Saeed Al-Naizi, was grappling with the difficult decision of whether to evacuate dozens of children and teenagers, mm -hmm. most of them be, uh, with disabilities, as strikes hit the area. The challenges uh, faced by people with disabilities are enormous, from difficulty receiving uh, evacuation orders to difficulties navigating rubble for those who rely on wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. um, the conflict has resulted in thousands of deaths and displacement, poses a particular threat to vulnerable groups of dis disabled Palestinians. Mm -hmm. um, so we need to understand what the obstacles and challenges faced by uh, people with disabilities during this conflict in, 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 in Gaza is that um, you know, children especially are not only at risk because mm -hmm. of their young age, but also because of their disabilities. Um, whilst others may struggle for food and, sh and, and, and shelter, uh, disabled people also are unable to access vital assisting devices, medication and therapy. Um, so obviously, Daniel, it's, it's, it's a very tough time for um, all those that are going through this, this conflict as well. Mm, certainly. And you know that um, what happens is that sometimes um, people ridicule or on such people um, who are with any kind of disabilities or uh, specifically who are with any intellectual disability, um, they are being uh, ridicu ridiculed or mocked by um, by by certain peoples, well, certain kind of peoples, and Islam commands us that Muslims should not uh, ridicule people or not nor to taunt people with disabilities with nicknames and it is stated in the holy quran that uh, do not muslims not to ridicule uh, people nor to taunt people with disabilities with nicknames and count those who do not refrain from this behavior as one of the unjust um, allah the almighty states that O ye who believe let not one people deride another people Happily, uh, they may be better than they, nor let women deride other women. Happily, uh, they may be better than they. And defame not your own people, nor call one another by nicknames. 
Mm. Um, bad indeed is evil reputation after the profession of belief. And those who um, and those who repent not, such are the wrongdoers. And uh, <clears throat> you know, if some of you sees that some sort of weakness in another person, a disability um, decreed by Allah Almighty, that some people have or are a def- or a defect in a person, you should not. Um, uh, we should not ridicule or mock or just make uh, fun of uh, them. Um, if there is a deficiency in someone, then remember that uh, anyone can suffer from it. That it is not in our hands. Uh, we, you mm. know, uh, living in society, many times have it could happen that you have seen around such examples that um, a person was just uh, walking fine, and um, he's he's going gym uh, or doing um, exercises, and he's physically fit. But in the next moment, um, something bad happens to him. So you never know what's going to happen, what will happen, to, uh, could happen to anyone. So you should always be grateful to Allah Almighty. That's the first and foremost thing which we need to do is that we need to be grateful to Allah. That's the only way um, um, which uh, through which you know we can... Um, be enhanced in in our physical, spiritual uh, abilities as well. Because in the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty states that uh, one who is grateful, uh, He will you know grant him more. And if he is not, uh, yeah, or if he is ungrateful, then He will you know uh, take away uh, things from him. Um, so. We need to the understand this uh, very vital point, <coughs> and because um, a person can grow in a society or as an individual only by following certain principles or rules, and if he or she is following that or uh, certain rules or principles, which are being you know uh, taught us by Allah the Almighty, then obviously. Uh, one will see the most um, benef- uh, beneficial results uh, by following them. Uh, so indeed, we should, you know, consider them, um, consider such people uh, who are in kind of any disability a part of our society and should try to treat them justly and with kindness as shown to us by um, by our, by the Holy Prophet, uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. <coughs> And um, again, um, again, um, in the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty states that surely in Allah, that surely in Allah's remembrance, um, um, that uh, hearts do hearts uh, find peace. And this is again a very vital uh, verse for. Um, for both kind of peoples, one who are with any kind of disability and one who are not. Um, for one who are with any kind of disability, you know, by remembering Allah, um, they don't do not feel any kind. They do not feel marginalized. Rather, they try to uh, remember Allah and try to be grateful to Allah Almighty by remembering Him. And and in return, as a result of this, their hearts find uh, comfort and peace. 
and you know it kind of shifts the focus on the true purpose of life um, by remembering and worshiping Allah Almighty and as being a Muslim that's why we are being you know um, told that we need to remember uh, specifically five times a day uh, the Allah uh, God Almighty uh, through our prayers and um, uh, when we remember Allah, the rem it says that um, remember that Allah will save the vulnerable people, people from their afflictions, and urges them to seek refuge with Allah. So that's a very wider verse. Again, number one, remember Allah, as it says in the Holy Quran, and what happens as a result that hearts find peace. Number one. And number two, that we need to understand that um, Allah does not burden anyone, any soul, beyond its capacity. It says in the Holy Quran, Allah burdens not any soul beyond its capacity. So, if for example, um, if there is a guest, uh, for example, if there is, there is a person uh, who is with any kind of disability, uh, he, he need to remember that firstly he can find peace by remembering Allah then he, he need to understand that Allah does not burden any soul beyond its capacity so he, he has the capacity to do all those things which you know um, anyone or any other person can do um, but, uh, it, but the only difference he can make is that it can varies from person to person so Allah has given different person different capacities different abilities and he does not burden any soul beyond its capacity. We need to understand these very beautiful vital points. And but right now, we will move to our guest, um, George um, Graham, uh, who is with us, and uh, um, he will, you know, enlighten us uh, regarding um, this. Uh, a very beautiful segment of ours. Uh, George is responsible for humanity and inclusion UK, leading a dynamic team to deliver an ambitious uh, UK strategy aligned with our vision and values. Before joining HI, uh, George spent 13 years at Save the Children and five years at the International Rescue Committee uh, working on humanitarian response uh, program quality policy, advocacy and campaigns. He has worked in the Middle East, East Africa, India and Balkans and for many years led Save the Children's humanitarian influencing work including its Global Stop the War on Children campaign. Um, George, welcome to the show. Good morning and peace be on you. Good morning and thank you so much for having me on. Uh, George, uh, what ways you know can international organizations um, connect with local authorities to implement um, sustainable um, aid and be inclusive towards disabled Palestinians? In Gaza, yep. uh, so in Gaza, the situation right now is, is as everybody knows, it's it's very, very difficult. So my organization is called Humanity and Inclusion, and we work around the world. Uh, in situations of poverty and exclusion, conflict and disaster alongside disabled people. Mm. Um, and we've had a long-standing program in Palestine. Uh, and so we have 
uh, over 100 staff and volunteers in Gaza mm-hmm. uh, working as best they possibly can in those awful conditions to identify people with disabilities and to provide support for them. But to answer your question, it's very, very hard right now because, as you know, the bombs are falling, uh, people are terrified, there's no order, um, so, so it's very, very difficult work to do. But I'm very pleased to say that they are, I mean, they're heroes, right? They're making a difference. They are um, doing things like distributing wheelchairs and other sort of mobility aids and um, wound dressing kits so the people who are injured can have their wounds healed. And we've also got experts in physical rehabilitation. So that means helping people who've got injuries or disabilities to get back on their feet again so that they can, you know, so, so they don't become permanent disabilities if it's an injury or so that they can function a little bit normally. Um, but of course, the other side of this is the psychological impact, which is just enormous for everybody. Mm-hmm. And how can the limited medical um, resources in Gaza be optimized uh, to provide uh, comprehensive care for for disabled individuals, especially uh, you know those with um, any kind of chronic conditions? Well, so again, you've seen on the news that um, the hospitals have been bombed, that medical supplies um, have been blocked from getting in, so it's very difficult. Um, we've got we we had stockpiles already of medical supplies and of uh, and of uh, supplies to support people with disabilities and injuries so we've been able to get to our stocks and get them distributed it's not been very easy for example in north gaza um we had stocks there but of course that was the bit that was attacked first and hardest and it was very hard to get to that warehouse and get those stocks but one of our very very brave colleagues did achieve that so we've been able to distribute things to people, um, I mean to thousands of people, which makes a, a life-changing difference for them. Because you can imagine if you've got an injury or a disability and you're being asked to move from, you know, from area to area, mm. um, you might be separated from your family who might normally give you care. You know, it's super, super difficult for someone yeah. in that situation. So we've been able to reach them. Um, and I just can't, I can't uh, sing the praises enough of my brave Palestinian colleagues who are doing this work. It's really quite remarkable. Mm. And, you know, what mental health um, resources are currently uh, available for disabled um, Palestinians in Gaza and how can they be expanded? And what are the main challenges uh, you are being, uh, you are forced to face um, involved in humanitarian missions there? So I mean, our organization, it's called Humanity and Inclusion, and a big part of what we do, and it's a growing part, is providing psychological support, mental health psychological support. Um, and we work, you know, we work in lots of other war zones and earthquake zones and other disaster zones. It's a big aspect of what we do. In Gaza, that means that we've got people who've got experience in providing psychological support. So we've been able to provide psychological um, sessions for individuals in the shelters, you know, hiding in shelters at the moment. We've been able to provide specialist care for people who've got really severe mental trauma, of which there are thousands right now because of how mm. bad the situation is. The other thing we've done, which is, is sort of joyful, I say sort of because the situation is so horrible, but it's joyful to see the thousands and thousands of kids that we've been able to support with really simple play-type activities. So I've seen lots of photos and video footage of our teams, our volunteers in Gaza right now in the middle of a war zone, playing with kids 
and trying to help those kids feel like their life isn't a disaster, help them feel a little bit normal. Um, so that's the sort of thing that we can do at Humanity and Inclusion that I think, um, you know, it's, it's, we can't stop the war, but we can make it a little different for, yeah. uh, for people with disabilities and people who are really suffering. Yeah, indeed. And uh, could you please also tell us about um, the uh, humanitarian efforts that Humanity and Inclusion UK has carried out for disabled Palestinians? Yeah, so um, uh, so we've done, I told you about the emergency supplies, so giving wheelchairs, crutches, um, mm. wound dressing kits. We do rehabilitation, so that is um, for people who sustain life-changing injuries like amputations or spinal cord injuries. We're helping them to get their functioning back. Because just to explain, right, if you get injured in a war zone mm. and no one helps you, then that injury is going to turn into a lifelong disability. But if someone's there to help you, then you can perhaps then you can perhaps either heal or learn to adapt to that, to that injury. Psychological support we've talked about. And then the other thing we do is um, we're, we're also um, experts in dealing with explosive weapons, unexploded ordnance, we say. So things, mm. when, when bombs drop, they don't always blow up. And so that makes it super dangerous, uh, not just at the moment that the bombs are falling, but afterwards, mm. if kids are playing on the streets or just even going out to look for food, there's a risk they're going to get blown up by something. So we are educating people, big, big sessions, also texting everyone in Gaza to alert them to those risks. And we hope one day that we will be able to get in uh, with our, our specialists to actually clear the, the explosive ordnance from the, from the rubble. So we're, we're you know, just to say, we're, we're raising money for this work. Um, and as I said, I think it's amazing what the teams have been able to do in the incredibly difficult situation that they're in and if anyone wants to see our appeal it's at humanity-inclusion.org.uk and also mm. if people want to donate they can text us on 70450 just write gaza mm -hmm. 70450 uh, to donate 10 pounds for the appeal it's, and yeah mm -hmm. it's it's uh, every day i'm just blown away by the stories i'm hearing out of gaza both the awfulness but also the amazing heroism of people who are responding mm. I think you are doing a very wonderful job and uh, also you know I would like to um, say something here that it is uh, as being a Muslim myself that it becomes a, a responsibility of each and every Muslim um, being ta as being taught by the um, holy founder of Islam uh, Prophet uh, peace be on him uh, the holy prophet peace be on him as he told that it is our responsibility to you know pay the due rights of not only the God Almighty but also to pay the due rights of his creation uh, as well and um, you know it kind of becomes the um, responsibility then uh, of every Muslim regardless of um, uh, the other person being a Muslim or not uh, it becomes our responsibility to help them if they are in kind of any dire situation and also i would say that you know you are doing a, a very wonderful job uh, may god you know uh, bless your endeavors and uh, thank you very much for joining us and thank you very much. peace be on you thank you thank you thank you, thank you. so that was uh, george uh, graham um is responsible for humanity and inclusion uk leading a dynamic team um, to deliver an ambitious UK um, strategy aligned with our 
uh, vision and values. Um, boys, uh, you know, as uh, we were discussing uh, before uh, the before our guest has joined us, um, the Islamic angle, and if you could, you know, please um, elaborate something more regarding this topic, uh, what Islam teaches us. Yeah, sure. Um, at the same time, Daniel, for the for the listeners, I just wanted to mention that if anybody wants to call in and and speak with us uh, in regards to this topic as well, the the, the number is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, or you can leave us uh, some comments um, on Twitter. Our um, Twitter handle is at Voice of Islam UK. Um, so. Uh, listeners do 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 interact if you want and uh, feel free to, to to give us a call um daniel you were mentioning um the the teachings of of islam and and what allah the almighty um uh, says right and it's important for us to um understand this also this this, this teaching of islam as well that um the, the the chapter is uh, chapter 2 verse 287 and Allah the Almighty says Allah burdens not any soul beyond its its capacity and you told us this and it's very important to understand this for us to for us to um, realize that um, you know we need to we need to uh, be strong at the same time mm. pray for the other people at the same time and um, remember that um, God Almighty will um, help those people in need uh, if they are uh, when they are suffering as well. Mubais, mm-hmm. um, um, I would like to you know play a very short clip, uh, which is regarding the importance of people with disabilities in society um, and the necessity to care for them according to Islamic values. And this is uh, this clip is from the program um, uh, Faith Matters. Mm. Uh, one pro- one of the programs which uh, which is uh, you know um, uh, from MTA uh, MDM Muslim uh, Television and uh, l- let's listen to this short clip. Different societies and different cultures uh, have a different perspective on disabilities and handicaps that people are born with, and living in the West here, we s- we see that as you have rightly said that the facilities that are out there for the the welfare of people who have these difficulties is sometimes remarkable to see how they are assimilated into the larger community and they are very useful members of society to that degree and we have many examples here in England uh, as well some some within our own community in the Jamaat Ahmadiyya where there are mm, severely handicapped uh, members who have been very useful parts of the or larger society as well as of the Ahmadiyya community itself. So people have these abilities and have these facilities which are granted to them by God that we may not always recognize them by first sight, but they have these capabilities by which they are very accomplished members of the society and play a very important and vital role to society. So this is an Islamic injunction in fact that society has to look after the needs of those who are, are not in a position maybe to look after their own welfare. This is going back to what the Holy Prophet through his own example in fact, you know if you go back to the history of Islam, 
how humanity, how his service to those around him had, had no sort of color to that they were Muslims and perfect in that sense. There were many a blind person in the streets of Mecca and Medina that he would go and make sure that they were well looked after and that every Muslim must be able to make sure that they were given the help that they so needed. So from, from that example we realize that this is, these are Islamic values and this is what the world of Islam today also should realize, should look into that these are important members of our society who, whose welfare must always be important in, in, in that respect. So a very uh, short and beautiful clip um, from the program uh, Faith Matters. Um, and now we will continue with uh, our, um, as you know, Islam Mubais was telling us about uh, this very topic through the Islamic uh, angle. And um, we see that, you know, how Islam and the Quran uh, urges people to treat people with uh, intellectual disabilities, with kindness, patience, and to protect people with um, disabilities. And the fifth caliph and the worldwide head of the MD Muslim community, His, His Holiness Mirza, Mirza Masroor Ahmad, um, he, you know, uh, he emphasized um, uh, on the um, on the Islamic principles of war, and and he said that even in times of war, uh, Islam does not permit the killing of women, children, or anyone that is not engaged in the fighting, and that is something you know uh, which the Holy Prophet, uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has given very strict guidance on, and uh, we need to. Uh, there are the guidance, uh, guidance, you know, um, lying in front of us. But the thing is, we need to understand them first, and then we do implement accordingly uh, into our lives as well. <coughs> and you know, um, uh, there is very beautiful uh, example as well uh, from the um, life of uh, Hazrat uh, Umar ibn Khattab the second caliph um, of um, the Holy Prophet وسلم, may peace and blessing Allah be upon him that he allocated for the people with um, special educational needs and disabilities uh, and disabilities uh, a fixed salary from Battle Mall which is the public uh, in treasury uh, while his great grandson um, the uh, Abdul Umar Ibn Abdul Aziz issued a decree throughout all the Islamic states saying write to me about every blind, disabled and paralyzed person and anyone who suffers from any chronic disease that prevents him from attending the prayers. And after he received the request, required list, uh, he made a census of each category then ordered that there should be an employee. Uh, to accompany every blind person to lead and take care of him and you know he further instructed that everyone who suffers from a chronic disease or any kind of disability should have a servant to serve and take care of him and it is you know it is the honor or dignity of Islam that it, it, it has such kind of uh, beautiful teachings um, which are linked to him uh, which are linked to it and we are the you know I would say mm, 
uh, people, uh, especially being a Muslim, uh, who should try to understand these teachings and try to implement our lives accordingly. Now we will end this segment and um, uh, we will continue um, with the last segment. We will start the last segment after a short break. Please do join us after this short break. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. Salat, prayer, and istighfar, seeking forgiveness, are excellent remedies for apathy and indifference. One should supplicate in Salat, O oh Allah, alienate me from my sins. If a person continues to pray sincerely, it is certain that his prayer would be answered sometime. It is not good to be in a hurry. A farmer does not harvest the crop immediately after sowing. One who is impatient is unfortunate. The sign of a pious one is that he is not impatient. Lack of patience has resulted in many a known case of failure. If a person digs a well to the depth of twenty arms' length and stops short of just one due to his impatience, he would waste his entire labor. Were he to dig the remaining arm length with patience, he would achieve his purpose. It is the way of God Almighty that He bestows the blessings of love, eagerness, and understanding after sufferings. Three proofs of the truthfulness of the Prophet Messiah. One, in a hadith of the Holy Prophet of Islam, وسلم, he has said that there will be two signs in the support of the Mahdi that have never occurred before since the creation of the heavens and the earth. These two signs are eclipses that would occur on very specific days during the month of Ramadan. In 1894, a few years after Hazrat Ghulam Ahmed made his claim of being the Prophet Messiah, India and the subcontinent were witnesses to an eclipse that had occurred on the first of the three days of the full moon and in Ramadan. In the following year, in 1895, the USA had witnessed an eclipse that had occurred on the second of the three days of the full moon again in Ramadan. Now we know eclipses aren't something that can be man-made, nor is there any technology on the planet that could create such a spectacle. So this has to be the work of God. This is clear, undeniable evidence in support of the truthfulness of the Prophet Messiah. 2. Performing miracles is commonly associated with prophethood. Jesus is said to have healed the sick, Moses is said to have parted the sea, and Jonah is said to have survived the belly of the whale. On one occasion, during the time of the Prophet Messiah, there was one student named Abdul Karim who fell severely ill with rabies. Now at that time, there was absolutely no cure nor any medication that could heal Abdul Karim. So the Prophet Messiah prayed for the recovery of the student, and Abdul Karim made a miraculous recovery. Now, without any human intervention, this can only be attributed to the work of God. A second miracle during the time of the Prophet Messiah is how he had perfected the Arabic language overnight. Now, how long would it take me or you to learn a language? Some years? Even people with degrees find it difficult to call themselves experts in the language. The Promised Messiah received a revelation of 40,000 Arabic words overnight, a language that is commonly known to be one of the most complicated languages in the world. This can again only be attributed to the work of God in support of the truthfulness of the Prophet Messiah. 3. We can see from the history of the Prophets that they have always been victorious in their claims and their missions. Similarly, 
the promised Messiah has been victorious in his claims and his missions. The promised Messiah received a prophecy from God that I shall cause thy message to reach the corners of the earth. Now the promised Messiah received this prophecy in a rural village in India in Guardian, an unknown town to the world. Now we can see that a little over a hundred years later, his message and his claim has reached over 200 countries around the world. This is nearly every country on the planet. Now who can now say that his message has not reached the corners of the earth? These are clear proofs of the truthfulness of the promised Messiah. Selections from the writings of the promised Messiah upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. The world cannot accept me because I do not belong to this world. But those who are gifted with a measure of otherworldliness are the ones who accept and will accept me. The one who rejects me rejects him who has sent me. And the one who is grafted to me is grafted to him who I represent. I bear a torch which will illumine all those who come close to me. But the one who entertains suspicion and doubt and runs away will be subjected to darkness. I am the impregnable fortress for this age. Whoever enters my fold will be protected from thieves, robbers and the beasts of the wilderness. I call to witness God Almighty who holds my life in his hand that compared to every other soul he has gifted me with overwhelmingly greater ability and access to the understanding and the deeper wisdom of the Holy Quran. If any of the Malvis, traditional Muslim scholars, who opposed me in response to my repeated invitations, had attempted to outshine me in the exposition of the Holy Quran, God would have most certainly frustrated his attempts and exposed his ignorance. Hence, the understanding of the Quran which has been granted me is a sign of Allah the Glorious, and I have full trust in Allah's grace that soon the world will begin to see that I am true in this claim. I am not alone. That noble Lord is with me. No one could be closer to me than him. It is only by his grace that I have been granted a loving soul, ever willing to serve his cause in the face of suffering, so that I should render with zeal and sincerity outstanding services in the cause of the faith and carry out to victory great expeditions for Islam. He has commissioned me to accomplish all this and none can make me desist from pursuing this cause. In the name of Allah, the most gracious and merciful. Uh, dear listeners, welcome back um, to The Breakfast Show. We are continuing with um, the third. Th th sorry, we are continuing with the third segment now. Um, the segment is, what is the key to ensuring a true spirit of of volunteering? Um, dear listeners, the International Volunteer Day is celebrated on the fifth of December every year. Its purpose is to commemorate the contributions and sacrifices of volunteers around the world. The goal is to inspire voluntary participation to build a better world. On International Volunteer Day 2023, individuals can participate by volunteering, thanking volunteers, attending volunteer events, donating to volunteer organizations and sharing inspiring stories through social media. 
It was established by the United Nations in 1985 and has since been celebrated as a moment to highlight the important role of volunteers in achieving sustainable development goals. It is hoped that a small contribution from each individual can create a, a significant positive impact. Dear listeners, uh, do join us. The number is 020-8687-7878. Or you can uh, leave a comment for us on uh, on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Voice of Islam UK. And with that, uh, we have with us our our first ge- uh, guest for, 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 for this segment, um, which is uh, Sarah Boardman. Um, Sarah Boardman is Retail Volunteering uh, Operations Manager at the British Heart Foundation. Uh, good morning, Sarah, and welcome to the uh, Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, so without any further ado, uh, Sarah, is there any uh, specific training or support given to, to volunteers to enable them um, you know, to be um, successful in, the, in, in, in their role? Yeah, absolutely. We um, So first of all, when a volunteer um, applies to join us at the British Heart Foundation, as part of that um, onboarding journey, um, they'll have what we call mandatory in- induction training. So all the, the key essentials really to make sure that they know a little bit about the, the BHF um, and that they know how to um, stay safe and well whilst volunteering at the BHF, along with some um, important basic training. And then when we get them started and we find out a little bit more about how they'd like to volunteer with us, we offer them some more specialist training. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, till training, furniture assembly. So there's a whole package of training, really, to make sure that the volunteers have everything they need to enjoy volunteering with us. Okay, brilliant. Um, and how does an organisation, you know, how do they how do they motivate and uh, maintain their volunteer volunteer engagement um, over the long term? Oh, that's a great question. And and what we find is that volunteers are usually highly motivated um, to begin with because mm. the, the the fact that <clears throat> excuse me the fact that they decided to come in and volunteer with us means that they're probably highly highly motivated to to help out our amazing cause. But what we do is make sure that that training is uh, is continued so that they get some um, that they can enhance their skills. We know. <clears throat> excuse me. We know. I'm very sorry. No, it's no problem. You can take your time. I got a tickle in my throat. Um, <clears throat> so we know that volunteers want to learn new skills um, and we, we know that they want to improve their confidence. So we're very careful to make sure that we understand the needs of each mm. of our individual volunteers. But we also have an incredible um, benefits program. So um, volunteers can have access to that from the day that they start. So they can get 25% discount off um, off all of our donated items, um, and there's a there's a whole um, hub of benefits. So they can have discounted purchases in major high street retailers. They've got access to the retail trust, which can help them with um, uh, financial support and and also um, counselling and things like that. So there's a, there's an array of things that. The volunteers can benefit from but i think if you were to ask all of our volunteers and in fact we do ask our volunteers in our um, annual our biannual survey one of the things that they tell us is that volunteering with us helps to combat loneliness which is particularly tricky at this time of mm-hmm. the year you know in the cold dark months but also we know that volunteering helps to improve um, an individual's mental health as well 
So there are a whole host of benefits to volunteering and we make sure that we understand our people so that they have the best experience. Brilliant. And what challenges uh, do you face as a volunteer? Um, and what advice can you give to volunteers, um, you know, so that they are happy and, and uh, successful in their in their duties? That's another great question. And I think to think about it from the volunteer's perspective is really important. So a couple of key challenges. First of all, I think for some people, actually um, starting that volunteer journey can be quite a challenge for them, you know, just kind of crossing into the shop to ask about volunteering or to go online and to inquire about volunteering. For some people, you know, if they're, if they're lacking in confidence, that can be a challenge in itself. So to those people, I would say either apply online and then we'll contact, um, we'll contact you um, online. Hmm. Or, or really do take that step into one of our shops and just ask about volunteering because the teams there will be really welcoming. They'll be really encouraged that you are considering volunteering for us. They'll even pop the kettle on and have a chat with you about what to expect from volunteering. So I think that's probably one of the first challenges um, for, for volunteers. And I think the second one is potentially um, lack of time. Um, we know that volunteers have, uh, or people generally, have less time to give to volunteering. So um, we know, for example, that our volunteers, uh, we have more volunteers, but they're giving us less time. Um, and everybody has pressure on their time, you know, don't they? You know, lo lots of things to do. So one of the things that we're really clear on at the British Heart Foundation is that we want to make volunteering really flexible and really easy. Mm. So it doesn't matter how much time you have available. We'll be really delighted to see you in one of our shops and stores on the high street. So don't be put off by that. You know, don't, don't see that as a challenge that can't be overcome. Even if you just have a couple of hours a week to spare, it really will make a massive difference to us. So um, we, we'd encourage people to join us anyway. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, and and last but not least, but can you, for the benefit of our listeners, um, what are the goals of of the British Heart Foundation, and 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 what is this organisation? Um, you know, what's it? What what is it doing for humanity? Well, again, that's really important for us to focus on, isn't it? Because, you know, still one in four people in the UK um, die from heart and circulatory disease. And mm. that causes, you know, complete heartbreak um, up and down the country on every street across the UK. So our, our work is really, really important and our work is, is not done. So we have so much more to achieve. But the BHF raises funds for life-saving research into heart and circulatory disease um, to find the treatments and cures for the future. So it's really life-changing research. Um, already our research has helped to give um, machines that restart hearts um, the ability to fix arteries in tiny babies. I mean, you know, that's just incredible even to think about. The power to give somebody a heart that mm. they weren't born with um, and so much more. So, you know, volunteering at the British Heart Foundation is really playing into all of that life-saving work and helps to support everything that we do. And it's more important than ever, you know, one in four people in the UK still die from heart and circulatory disease and it affects families up and down the country. So it's so important. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, uh, Sarah. Um, you know, thank you for giving advice to the listeners um, and hopefully we will um, see more people joining you guys, uh, helping you. And we will see more people uh, just generally volunteering with, with more humanitarian work um, because it is something which um, 
helps your own soul as well at the same time to realize that you're helping other people. Absolutely. Um, so it's a very good job that you guys are doing as well, and and everybody out there that who is volunteering in any aspect. Um, so may may God the Almighty bless you in all your endeavors and and, and all your work as well. Um, Sarah, it was lovely Thank to to speak to you this morning. Thank you for joining us and being with us. And you too. Thank you. Have a good day. You Take too. care. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was um, uh, Sarah Boardman, um, Retail uh, Volunteering Operations Manager at the British Heart Foundation. Uh, dear listeners, we are moving on to our next guest, which is Zara Canfield. Zara Canfield currently working as Volunteer Marketing Man- Manager at Oxfam GB previously working in Oxen GB's festivals and events team. Um, a previous background in marketing, social media and fundraising. Good morning, uh, Zara, um, and welcome to the Voice of Islam Radio. Good morning, good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, so, Zara, could you please tell our listeners um, how does Oxfam UK involve volunteering uh, vo- volunteers in humanitarian or community empowerment efforts? Yeah, so um, at Oxfam we've got over 560 shops across the UK mm. and um, obviously with things, um, we've got our Gaza appeal at the moment so we do involve our volunteers within that kind of work and really our we always say that our Oxfam shops are at the heart of the community and um, are a great place to kind of get to know people. Maybe you might be new to the community. Um, it's really kind of a community hub where you can, um, you know, pop in, have a cup of tea, have a chat, um, get to know people. So we we really hear from people this time of year, you know, community involvement and, um, uh, you know, do, doing something good is is something that people want to do. And at Oxfam, we um, yeah, really appreciate people's time. You know, just giving a few hours a week um, really, really helps us to support our work around the world. Mm, brilliant. And what are the main um, challenges faced by volunteer workers, um, you know, whoever's involved in these, in these um, local jobs? So um, I would say I think some people m- might think that you have to give lots of time. Um, and, you know, people... Uh, you know, very conscious of the, you know, their time, but um, we always say at Oxfam that there's, you know, there's a role for everybody, um, regardless mm. of how how much time you can give. Um, you know, be that a few hours sorting through donations, maybe you want to be on the till talking to customers. We've got an online shop; you can list items online. Um, so there's really lots of things, lots of ways you can get involved, and I think that's that's something that maybe uh, people might not be aware of that you can. Okay. You know, you get as little as a few hours a week. Um, what kind of um, a role could someone who's 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 an office-based job works five times a week um, mm-hmm. during the week? What is there that he can he or she can do? Um, you know, aside to their to their working hours. I mean, most working hours can be you know they can be from eight a.m. to to six mm. seven p.m. So, mm. and I'm sure that your shops um, main main stores. Are between nine a.m. to six p.m. Right. Mm. So, mm. what is the what role can they play during the week? Yeah. So we have um, some shops that have their kind of social media. Um, so we we do have a lot of people who kind of join that might might want to support on social media, and that could be obviously at all kind of times of the day. Um, obviously at the weekend, we know again because time is precious. But 
if you wanted to go in and um, just support for you know a few hours a week and you know have a chat with your in your local shop um, that's a really great way to kind of get involved and um, we also know that a lot of um, companies businesses have um, the option for volunteer days which mm. I really recommend you know people asking their employer about and to see if they can kind of explore that because um, we do offer corporate volunteer days and these are a really great way to kind of come together uh, it might be as a team or as an individual um, and um, yeah basically for a day or two you can do something that's completely different to your you know your nine to five mm. um, and we really hear that that's uh, something that I think more companies and businesses are doing more of actually like a team building um, kind of exercise okay. um, and yeah, to support charities obviously a win-win brilliant yeah definitely definitely and and um that's why i i kind of wanted to just make sure our listeners can can know that there are other ways that you can help during the mm. week as well um so uh, zara how can the experience of of working as an as a volunteer in the humanitarian field you know shaped one's understanding of you know global challenges and and social mm. responsibility yeah, so obviously at Oxfam we're an international organisation and um, our the, our shops in the UK play a huge part in terms of raising valuable income um, for our work. And, um, you know, we do keep volunteers up to date in terms of our projects and our programmes. Um, and, you know, even though we are based uh, in the UK in our shops, it, you know, it, it helps massively in terms of raising um, income for, you know, our work and, um yeah, we keep people up to date. We've got a newsletter and um, lots of ways that people can kind of get involved. That you know, maybe you can't donate money, but you can donate a few hours a week, and that is just as valuable to us. We really, really appreciate people's time and effort in terms of like, you know, that then goes on to you know raise uh, money for Oxfam. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, we're always blown away by the um, amazing support and hearing the stories of people that are volunteering. You know. I go to shops all the time and, you know, in, in the one same shop, you might have someone who's, you know, a retired doctor um, and then someone who is, a, I don't know, a student starting out and, you know, re- really have people from kind of all backgrounds or mm. experiences, ages. And I think that's a really, really great, um, I mean, that's what I love about our, mm. our shops is that um, there's a role for everyone. Mm. And and uh, you know there there will be some benefits that um, you know these volunteers and everybody that they mm. gain um, you know from yeah. from from volunteering. So could you shed some light on what kind of yeah. um, experience they might gain? Yeah. So um, we will obviously you know no experience is needed in terms of volunteering in our shops, and um, we will give training where needed, and um, we always you know when we survey volunteers and we talk to volunteers one of the the main factors is actually that kind of community spirit um it's people always say kind of you know it really boosts their confidence so Mm. um even though yes we've got shops that means kind of serving customers it doesn't mean that you have to have like a customer facing role um if you're more comfortable kind of maybe sorting through donations or doing a different task um you know confidence building is great adding stuff to your cv um, and I think just kind of being involved in your local community, I think that's that's a real aspect yeah. that we see in our shops is that it's a bit of a hub into the local community. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, um, Zara, if someone wants is wanting to donate something to to Oxfam, um, yeah. how does that go about then? 
Yeah, so if you want to donate items, then um, you can just you know, drop into your local Oxfam shop. Um, and if you can't do that or you haven't got one near you, you can actually order a, a bag online um, to send items in the post. Um, and then obviously you can donate time as well. So we've got lots of shops around the, the UK um, and uh, there's normally an Oxfam shop on the high street near you. So I do recommend just popping in, having a conversation um, and then, yes, you can apply online and go from there. Perfect. Brilliant. Um, Zara Canfield, thank you very much for being with us today. Um, no it was a delight speaking to you and uh, may God the Almighty help you in all your endeavours as well. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was uh, Zara Canfield currently working as Volunteer Marketing Manager at Oxfam GB, um, previously working in Oxfam GB's festivals and events team. Um, dear listeners, that is bringing us um, towards the... Um, final moments of today's um, breakfast show Certainly, yeah. um, and with that we would like to leave a good few points um, in regards to what Islam teaches. Yeah just a last point that um, a very beautiful example of this weekend uh, we have you know personally experienced uh, during the days of Jalsa Salana the annual gathering where mm, thousands of volunteers you know they volunteer um, for the sake of God Almighty and for his pleasure and um, those people, uh, they come with passion, mm. and they are engineers and uh, doctors, and from you know many different fields, and they come with passion and volunteer for the days of Jalsas Nana, the annual annual gathering of the Muslim community, and you know it's it's a very um, blessed event, but. As Mubariz has Mubariz has said that we are you know arriving um, at the end of the show, and I would like to thank uh, our researchers, our producer and tech team, and um, and you know uh, it was a pleasure to have been on the show. Um, until next time, um, uh, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.